When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 256, and we are recording on November 2nd. I'm Jen Northington. I'm here with Amanda Nelson, and we are coming to you from Book Riot and Election Anxiety. So much of it. I actually feel pretty, I feel okay. I feel okay. Good. That's good. (laughs) Which is probably the best that I'm going to get to. Yeah. It's like, I feel okay. You know, everybody's got 2016 trauma, mm-hmm. understandably. Mm-hmm. But it's looking good, and I'm letting myself be optimistic, because I would rather, even if I turn out wrong, I'd rather have spent this week feeling okay than, like, being miserable, and then also being wrong. So <laughs> that's what I've chosen to do. It's been fine. <laughs> well, you will all know, listening to this, what we do not know, which right, is what's going right, on. Right. So hopefully our tone is not just completely inappropriate. But here we Time are, travel. recording in advance. <laughs> This is what happens. Yeah, I'm not okay, but it's fine. It's it's fine that I'm not okay because that's just how it is sometimes. 48 hours. That's right. It'll be over. Sort of. Uh, okay. <laughs> sort of. Over it yeah. should be the beginning of the end. Right. The, the beginning of the, the end. The first part will be over. Right. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about how this show is supposed to work. Uh, You send in (laughs) your reading requests, and we do our best to find you your next great read. These can be questions for yourself. Maybe there's a book that you love and you haven't been able to find something similar. Maybe you need a recommendation for your book club or a friend or a relative or gift-giving or travel or whatever. You can send those requests to email getbooked at bookriot.com, or you can drop them in the form that's at the bottom of the show notes uh, on this site for every episode. And we'll do our best to get back to you. If you have a time-sensitive question you're hoping to hear back by a specific date, especially holiday recommendations, Mm -hmm. please put time-sensitive and then when you're hoping to hear back by either all caps in the subject line of the email or the very first line of the form, and we'll do our best. If we're not going to get back to you on the air and uh, it's time sensitive in particular, we might try to send you an email response. So keep an eye out for those. All right. So I'm going to read our first question and then we'll take a sponsor break and then we will start recommending. So our first question is from Ko, who says, I'm writing on behalf of a friend who has been having trouble finding a truly scary horror book to read for the season. She's finding a lot of genre-bending works or books that are more thrillers, but none of these are what she is looking for. Here are some books she has found scary. The Ritual, The Ring. Here are some books she has not found scary. Any Stephen King. I'm thinking of ending things. She reads in English, Japanese, and French. That's fancy. Anything you can help her search would be much appreciated. Well, well, let's see what we can do. All right, so first, let us take a sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Disney Books. Do y'all like Caribbean mythology? 
what's more a thriller inspired by Caribbean mythology? If you do, I got something for you. A must-read thriller that draws from the darkest corners of Caribbean mythology from acclaimed author Sarah Das, who crafts a chilling tale of magic, murder, and how far we'll go to protect what's ours. It's perfect for fans of Angeline Bully and Tiffany D. Jackson. So, unlike other people on the small island of St. Virgil, Selena Da Silva does not believe in magic. She has a logical mind. She likes botany. She wants to study pharmacology. But then her mother gets sick and she's tethered to the island and she has to make money so what does she do she cons a couple gullible tourists with these useless talismans and phony protection rituals but then one of the tourists ends up dead and at the center of a strange string of murders and the truth selena has been denying can no longer be avoided there is evil lurking in the forest that surround St. Virgil. Now to find out what that evil is, make sure to pick up It Waits in the Forest by Sarah Das. And thanks again to Disney Books for sponsoring this episode. All right, Amanda. Actually scary, horrifying horror. <laughs> Actually scary. Okay, this is hard because as we've said on the show before, both of us are kind of weenies about horror. So the things that scare me are probably on a much lower bar than the things that would scare somebody who is like tougher. But I picked Bird Box by Josh Mallerman, which was terrifying to me and has stuck with me all of these years later because you said that she likes the ring and the ring I feel like is mostly psychologically terrifying because you don't actually see the villain in the book for most of it, really. It's all like weird videotapes that behave strangely and like people dying in ways that make no sense and like atmospheric tension. And Bird Box has a lot of that. You never see and neither do the protagonists, the villain. Because in this world, it's like, you know, normal contemporary times. And something has arrived on the planet that when you look at it, drives people to suicide. And so this is how the world is ending, right? And the main character, Mallory, is pregnant when this starts happening. And she manages to get into a safe house just as the world is falling apart with other people who have survived. And so they board up the windows. When they go outside, they wear blindfolds, like the whole thing. You know, life is completely offended. When they go f- searching for supplies, they have to, you know, wear blindfolds and like make a mental map of the neighborhood. And it's all just very complicated. So she, you you get flashbacks to this time of when the f- world has first ended and she is trying to get into the survival mode. And then present day, which is about five years later, when she has had her pregnancy is over. She's got twins, two kids, and she gets a, a phone call from somebody who's looking for survivors about a kind of like a commune downriver from her where people are gathering together and she at this point is alone she's alone with these two children um and so she has to go on this journey because she doesn't want to be alone anymore with her two kids down the river i think it's like 20 miles to try to find these survivors all while blindfolded and being hunted by whatever this thing is that has you know caused the world to end and the terrifying i mean of course it's frightening because like you never know what the the big bad is you don't see it it's never described it's just there and then also the ways that she has to as a person with twins like all of that was very frightening to me the ways that she has to raise her kids to survive in a world where they can never open their eyes outside is just mortifying it's just mortifying it's like she doesn't give them names at first they're they're a boy and a girl and she calls them boy and girl because she doesn't want to give them names in case something bad happens to them like it's just heartbreaking and then they get on this river and like nobody can see anything and there's rapids it's i haven't watched the movie because i just can't handle it so anyway (laughs) i thought that it was truly truly frightening in a lot of similar ways to The Ring, both the book and the movie, because I've read the book and it, it's got some of that same like invisible villain thing going on. So that's Bird Box by Josh Mallerman. Yeah, I, especially right now, I'm not in a place to like read anything for this question. However, we have lots of contributors here at Book Riot who love scary, scary books. There's actually a post uh, of most terrifying books assembled by those brave souls. Um, and I'm going <laughs> to link to it in case you want even more options for your friend. Um, and the one I'm linking to, I haven't read this one by him, but I've read others and people have been raving. It's The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones. Yeah, this has been on several lists of like, no, really, it's actually really, really scary, which I will believe. Um, (laughs) I don't need it proven to me. Uh, And it follows four Native men after a disturbing event from their youth puts them in a struggle for their lives. Like they, there's this thing that happened when they were kids, as often does. And then, you know, years later, there's this 
revenge coming their way and they have to figure out like are they going to survive it can they you know atone for whatever the thing that they did is and are they all going to die so (laughs) if that sounds like it's in your friend's wheelhouse again that's the only good indians by stephen graham jones apparently the audio is excellent as well just throwing that out there i've heard very good things all right question two is from megan who says I run a book club at my office with a focus on diversity. In the past, some of the topics we've read about have been race, gender, wealth inequality, disability representation. Some of the members have expressed an interest in a book about American politics to make us better informed, whether it be about processes or systems that are in place, or even just to understand how ideas started or got embedded in different parties. I feel like this is hard given that everyone has different political viewpoints. I want the read to be informative, but not biased one way or another, so the discussion can stay thoughtful and civil. Ideally, you are likely to learn something no matter which way you lean. I think something a little more anthropological or historical might be the best, but I'm looking for your expertise. Okay, uh, we do fiction and nonfiction. In this case, nonfiction is the way to go, probably. And they've already read Stamped and Stamped Remix and Disability Visibility, which were my first two choices. (laughs) But they've they've already read them. So, um, okay, I'm going to keep going. This is Jen's note in here, but I'm going to steal it. Sorry, Jen. Yeah, go for it. The thing that you're looking for, which is a history of American politics that has no bias, is not a thing. That's not a thing that exists at all. <laughs> like, it's not possible to write it. It's not it just that's nothing. But so I picked a People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn because I was going to pick the Jill Lepore, her more recent history book, but it's like 500, 600 pages long, which is probably inappropriate for a book club. But the People's History of the United States also super, super long as a paperback, but it goes, it's not as like dense, you know, so I feel like you could get through it a bit faster. You could also get a bridge version. So I picked this because it is a very um, like populist telling of the history of the US. It's very much from like workers' rights perspective. The kind, the kind of thesis here is that the ideals upon which the nation were founded are great. Here are all the ways that we have failed to live up to them over time. Um, especially with the way that the government has treated indigenous people, black people and women. And he is, you know, kind of it's it's a very left wing argument that he's making. And I'm saying that and, and picking it for you because most history books that you will read are very right wing, like they're very kind of performatively patriotic, a little bit like there's some hagiography of the founding fathers, like a lot of worship of the American Revolution kind of stuff. Like, there's very little in the history books that I've read, which is a lot, a discussion of the ways in which the government has failed. So I think that in reading this, it will counterbalance, perhaps not unbiased, but I think it will counterbalance in a real way the history that the people in your book club have probably already read just through, like, education and school and pop culture and kind of the political climate right now. And Zinn is not shy about saying that this is um, a pretty leftist look at the history of the United States. So you can take all of that, you know, it's not just take it with a grain of salt. It's that he passes you the salt shaker. Like he is not hiding any of that. And that's a lot of conversation starter fodder right there. So that's a people's history of the United States by Howard Zinn. Yeah, I it just to pick up, especially on that last point you made, Amanda, because books are written by humans and all humans right. have biases one way or another. And you can be aware of them and acknowledge them and offer, you know, points or counterpoints to the best of your ability. But you're always going to have areas where your biases do not allow you to see them. Because, again, human brains, like this is just how human brains work. And, you know, quote unquote, unbiased histories are often hiding their biases because they don't think they have any, but it's just not true. So they're much more subtle. So it's part of reader, you know, critical thinking to be able to ID like, okay, where is this author coming from? And it's not biases in themselves are not necessarily bad. They just need to be acknowledged. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so so I picked for you uh, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee by David Troyer. I picked it because, I mean, it is a chunker, I'm not gonna lie, it's 500 plus pages, um, even in paperback, and it's real good. And I picked it for you because you mentioned looking for something more anthropological or historical, and that you are also interested in exploring like systems and how certain things got started and embedded. And this book is a fantastic look at Native American history from 1890, which is the year that the Wounded Knee Massacre happened forward. Because, as Troyer points out, so much of the Native American history that uh, we learn as United States citizens in schools basically stops there. Like, it just, it's like, that happened, 
And then they made, like, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And then that's it. Like, that's all the history that you learn. Like, you don't learn about anything else. And it's a real act of erasure not to acknowledge, like, what happened next. And, you know, what the populations of Native Americans across the country have been doing since and how they have survived and adapted, how they've struggled, how they've triumphed, you know, what their internal issues have been, because no, you know, they encompass many cultures and many different tribes and affiliations. And, you know, they are not a monolith. So it's a it's a really amazingly well done, I thought, dive into the the present and like more recent past history of the Native American communities in the United States. And, you know, Troyer is uh, trained in a couple of ways. He has anthropology training. Um, he grew up on the reservation. Um, and he also has, you know, writing and journalism training. So like he he's written novels, like he's he's written essays, he's written all different kinds of things. And I think you can really tell because this this book is very readable. It's long, but each chapter in itself, super readable. So you can move through it in different ways, um, depending on how your book group may want to approach it. But uh, and, you know, he's also very aware of his own perspective, where he's coming from. He tries to offer perspectives on past histories, like here's what this person might have been thinking. Here's what these people said they were thinking. Here's why it happened the way it did. So he is doing his best to lay bare both his own biases and the biases of those involved in the events themselves, um, which, again, is all you can ask for. Like we can, we can only try as humans to be aware of them and to acknowledge them. But I just think it's an it's a it's incredibly educative read, especially for folks in the U.S. who just have not had any education around it. And it reveals, I think, a lot, especially about things like the water protests and the pipeline uh, issues and, and, you know, national park conservation issues and all of these things that are very relevant to our current political moment. So, again, that's The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee by David Troyer. All right. Our next question is from Diane, who says, uh, looking for a different kind of mystery for a book group with women who read a lot. Please don't dip into horror. Has to be the first if it's a series. So, Amanda, what did you pick for this question? So my pick is Winter Counts by David Heska Wanbley Wyden, who is a Lakota man who has written this like mystery thriller crime novel. Um, that takes place on the Rosebud Indian Reservation. It's in South Dakota. And it's about a man named Virgil who is a vigilante. And he has paid, you know, to fix crimes. That's what vigilantes <laughs> do. I don't feel like I don't need to define that for you. Um, but the reason why he has business is because the tribal police are only allowed to prosecute crimes up to federal crimes. So misdemeanors, shoplifting, things like that. And the feds, who would handle things like rape, sexual, sexual assault, murder, decline to get involved whenever it's not, you know, just like a straight up murder. So if something has happened to your family, like one of your children is, you, there's like physical abuse or rape in your family or something like that, the federal government will not get involved because of racism. And so you have nowhere to go. So that people are hiring Virgil to go, you know, lay down the law with his fists mostly. So this is what he's doing. He also is the guardian of his nephew because his sister, the nephew's mother, died in a car accident. So he's taking care of this 14-year-old boy. And a member of the tribal council comes to Virgil and says, you know, we've got this problem on the reservation where heroin has started to show up and kids are ODing at really large rates. And heroin is not a thing that's ever really been a problem for um, our community. And I want you to go find this one guy who we know is bringing it in. And Virgil is like, I don't think I'm going to get involved in that. Like, it's a big deal. It sounds like it's kind of annoying. Like, there's no proof that this guy is, is the one bringing the drugs in. But then his nephew, his 14-year-old nephew, does OD, and he gets so mad that he decides he's going to get involved and find out where these drugs are coming from. So he, he travels to Denver with his ex-girlfriend to kind of try and figure out uh, where the drugs are coming from, not just like that this guy is bringing them onto the reservation, but like where is he getting it? All of this gang violence um, gets is like kind of the source of it. So he gets involved in all of that. And then it turns out that the politics of the tribal council at home are also super complicated and have a lot to do with it. So it's this mystery that he's trying to solve, of not just where the heroin is coming from, but why? Like, why is heroin suddenly flooding a tribal reservation when it's never been a thing that they've really had to deal with before? Uh, and then also, of course, he's trying to raise his nephew and yeah, make money, have like a normal job, deal with his life, deal with his ex-girlfriend, all this kind of stuff. So it's such an interesting like it's one of those mysteries where you're you're like learning about 
not an obscure, but something that I have no personal familiarity with, like por- por- portion of the law, specifically tribal law on reservations that like I have no idea how that kind of thing is- goes other than having read novels about it, which are few and far between. And so I like it's just and it's very fast paced. I don't know if y'all follow me on Instagram, but when I read Blacktop Wasteland, I was like, oh, my God, like just pedal to the floor. You read it in a sitting. Your heart rate never recovers. And I'm having the same experience with this book where like you I pick it up from the time I pick it up to the time I remember to put it down. I'm like, wow, my blood pressure is very high right now. <laughs> like the stakes are so high and it's so fast paced and it's so like, whoo, I need a vacation from this book, you know. So highly, highly recommend lots of stuff to talk about. That's Winter Counts by David Heska Wanbly Wyden. I picked A Madness of Sunshine by Nalini Singh, who writes a lot of different things. She writes paranormal romance. She writes thrillers now. She writes all kinds of stuff. Um, And this is a thriller. It's a standalone. As far as I'm aware, there hasn't been any announcement of any more books in the series. And I picked it because, yeah, it is an area, like it's a geographic area that I have never read a thriller set in before. It takes place in New Zealand in a very small town called Golden Cove. The main character, Anahara, uh, left at 21. Like she was like, this is a small town. There's things here that I want to forget. I'm leaving and I'm never coming back. Except that, of course, eight years later, she comes back uh, (laughs) because things have not gone well for her in her quote unquote new life. And, uh, And there's reasons why that she has returned. So... She comes back into town. She's starting to reconnect with everybody, um, putting her house back in her little cabin house back in order. And there's also a new detective in town uh, named Will. He had a very promising career in Christchurch, but, you know, things happened. And now he's like a small town cop and like just dealing basically with like drunken disorderlies and some petty theft. But then one day, a young woman goes out for a run and never returns. And so Will has to, like, head up this missing person case. But he doesn't know the people. Like, he is an outsider. Um, And they like him just fine, but they're not allowed, they're not about to tell him anything. And and in the meantime, Anahara is, like, she's been away for a while, but she's got connections in the community. She also forms a bond. There's, like, some attraction uh, going on between her and Will. And so she ends up getting involved in the investigation, sort of almost as, like, a liaison between the detective and the town's inhabitants who, like, are going to tell her a little bit more. Not, like, a lot more, but a little bit more. And so, you know, they have to solve the mystery. I will say there's like it's a thriller, it's violent. There's violence towards women and children, including references of rape and domestic violence. Um and I know some folks struggle with reading about terminated pregnancies, so that's in there too and some harm to animals. Like it's, you know, it's a thriller. It's violent. Um but I and you know what's interesting about this book is it is actually a slower burn that I'm used to with thrillers, but I didn't care because the setting and the characters were so well drawn. And like, I was just like, oh, what's their deal? Like, what's their deal? Like, I didn't mind that it developed slowly because it gave me time to like hatch all these wild theories about like who was the actual villain here. I I very much enjoyed it. So again, that's A Madness of Sunshine by Nalini Singh. All right. Our next question is from Quinn, who says, I'm looking for a book that centers on people with superpowers, preferably for the YA and adult ages. I've read The Reckoning, The Reckoners trilogy by Brandon Sanderson and Renegades by Marissa Mayer. I'm looking for something along the same vein, good versus evil, action-packed adventure that follows superheroes. Okay, I picked Wonder Woman Warbringer by Lee Bardugo, which is part of Random House's DC Icon series of YA novels that are all about um, their superhero line. So like there's a Batman one, um, they, what all I can think of now. Oh, there's a Catwoman one. And they're all written by pretty well-known YA authors. So the Wonder Woman one obviously was written by Lee Bardugo, who I love and am a little bit obsessed with in like not a weird way, a normal <laughs> way. Um, and it's super fun, very good versus evil, lots of action. It opens on uh, Themyscira, you know, the island where um, Princess Diana, who was Wonder Woman, lives with the Amazons. And she sees a, a boat, uh, like, explode off the coast and sees that somebody has survived. So she, like, swims out and saves 
this girl who turns out to be like a teenage girl um, from drowning brings her to the island in total violation. If you've seen the movie, you know this. In total violation of the rules. And, the, and she starts nursing her back to health. And the island starts to react like there's earthquakes. Things start going really, really badly. And she gets caught and, uh, you know, is told, you've got to get rid of this girl, this human that you've brought onto the island. She refuses to do it. And so she leaves. She leaves with the girl who turns out, her name turns out to be um, Aaliyah. And she's like very wealthy. And her brother owns this super fancy tech company. Um, She also is a war bringer, which is a direct descendant of Helen of Troy, who is like a prophesied human who is born every, you know, X number of decades who brings death and destruction everywhere she goes. (laughs) NBD. No big deal. Sorry about that. Justin Magines, a little bit supernatural. So sorry. Um, And so, of course, it has gotten out that she is the war bringer. And so all of these different factions in in the world, governments, scientists, all these people want to either kill her or catch her and like run a bunch of tests on her or whatever. And Diana has decided that she's going to like help this girl in her, you know, quest to not die, which is kind of important. And what's interesting about this is most of the cast is teenagers, even though it's like all of these end of the world stakes, because that's how, you know, that's how YA does, uh, including Diana. She is very much a, a young adult in this book. I don't think her age really has the same numerical impact because she's immortal, but she's a teenager for all intents and purposes. So um, her, she's a little bit reckless. Her decision making is sometimes a little wonky. Um, her judgment is a little bit off. Just very teen, like emotional decision making, teenagery kind of stuff. But it is like watching a movie uh, in a book. Like Lee Bardugo really captured that kind of comic book movie superhero movie thing with a really, really great diverse cast, lots of action. It's very, very fun. So that's Wonder Woman Warbringer by Lee Bardugo. Nice, nice. Uh, I picked the Sidekick Squad series by C.B. Lee, which I love. Uh, The books are, they are YA, and you get introduced to these teenagers who live in an America where superpowers are, like, very normal. And there's different gradients. Like, some people have, you know, like, really amazing, huge, zappy powers. And then some people can, like, levitate six inches off the ground. And, like, that's that's <laughs> what they can do. Um, so there's a whole range of powers. And you get tested. Uh, and some people have them and some people don't. And Jessica Tran, the main character of the first book, Not Your Sidekick, lives in, a, like, her parents are, like, the local, like, the local version of uh, superheroes. So they're, like, they're not super. They, like, char- you know, they're in a feud with the local, quote-unquote, super villains. And it's all very, like, low-key and, like, sometimes a little bit silly. But, you know, they're they're the local superpowers that be. But she doesn't have any powers. Um, and she's just, like, trying to get into college. And she needs an internship. Uh, because, you know, these are, like, life goes on. Like, superpowers are only one-tenth of your day. And the rest of it is normal stuff. So... She finally finds a great internship, except for it's for the town's supervillain. And she's feeling very rebellious. So she's like, take that, mom and dad. Like, I'm going to go work for the supervillain. Like, ha. Um, it's like the most teenager thing ever. <laughs> it's <laughs> really great. Um, so and of course, you know, things unwind from there. I like don't want to give too many spoilers. But what I love about the world building in this is that, you know, C.B. Lee really considers all of the weird politics that would come into play with that many people having superpowers, right? Like when there's like five or six of them and then like five or six villains, it's a little bit different. But when like any town can have a local superpower to a certain extent, like what does that mean? And like, how do you organize them? And who's in charge? And like, who tells them what they can and can't do? And how do they market themselves? Like marketing is a thing. Which is so real. Like, that's just so real. Uh, But you don't see that all the time, especially in the comics world. And so I really loved this kind of different vision of how superpowers manifest, how they work, how they're regulated, and, like, what that means for especially teenagers who, like, have not yet accepted the status quo and still can question things. Um, And I think similar to Renegades, it plays a little bit with, like, who's good and who's bad. Like, really, who's good and who's bad. Um, It's also extremely an inclusive series. There's some really great queer love stories involved or, like, crushes. 
Yeah, just amazing characters. There are currently three books in the series, and the fourth is coming. It's the last one uh, next year. So, uh, like, I encourage you to dive in and just enjoy. Um, so, again, that's The Sidekick Squad by C.B. Leith. The first book is Not Your Sidekick. And it is time for another sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal, join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. Luckily, though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. Ella assures her that she's fine, partying hard is what it takes, but with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the Critics Scott King John Steptoe Award for New Talent for We Deserve Monuments, and We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes & Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023, so suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. Okay, our next question is from Christina, who says, since travel isn't really an option right now due to the pandemic, I've been looking for nonfiction travel books. I'd prefer diverse authors and with a funny tone. No eat, pray, love, please. Amanda, what do you have? Okay, I picked An African in Greenland by Tete Michelle Kopomasi. It's translated by James Kirkup. And this is kind of a, a lesser known travel uh, memoir, but it does have such funny moments. So Tete Michel, it was from Togo, and he decided he, he saw a book about Greenland in like a missionary's library um, and decided that he wanted to go see a place that was made entirely of ice because that was so far outside of his own, you know, lived experience. It took him 10 years of walking, mostly, to get to Greenland from his home. And the accounts that he gives of the time that he spends in this, you know, ice-bound, freezing cold nation are hilarious off. And he because he's so like, you do what? <laughs> like you eat what? It's so so much cultural sh culture shock. And, you know, he like it's this was written in the 60s or he did his traveling in the 60s. So it's a bit of a different environment where he could like walk on someone's knock on someone's door and be like, hi, I'm a traveler. Tell me about your culture. And then people would be like, word, come on in. Why don't you stay here for six months while we feed you? You know, that <laughs> kind of like mm, would not happen today. But the things that they they eat, he's like very often confused or uh, like a little bit snarky about like how the people in Greenland treat their dogs, about how the people in Greenland only eat fish. Like, why is there nothing else to eat here? It's just really, really, really funny. Um, and nice to see that kind of swapped perspective because so often Travel memoirs that are kind of a little bit snarky, a little bit edgy, a little bit humorous are at the expense of a quote unquote exotic mm. place that the, that like a white person has gone and been like, LOL, look, at they don't use forks. They eat with two sticks. Isn't that funny? No, it's not funny. You're a dingus. <laughs> but this is funny. Like, this is funny because he's so it, like the combination of the cold and like how the how the um, like families have to sleep on one bed because it's so cold that they, you know, they like, literally huddle for warmth. And he's just kind of standing there like, I'm 
not going to do. I'm going to go ahead and not do that. It's just really <laughs> great. It's really, really great. And the fact that he spent 10 years trying to get to this place because he saw a picture of her in a book, like, what? It's amazing. So that's An African in Greenland by Tate Michelle Kupamasi. Nice. I picked Buttermilk Graffiti by Edward Lee, which was recommended by Jamie Herndon, because I realized a lot of the travel books that I've read are not funny or, like, even lighthearted. Like, it's just not. Somehow, I only read serious travel. Um, I don't know. <laughs> so, Buttermilk Graffiti, uh, Edward Lee is a chef, and he, in this book, is going around to different communities in America that have... Uh, roots elsewhere. So they're, you know, immigrant populations who have been in America for a while. And like, how has the cuisine of their culture like melded and changed over time of being in the United States? So like he goes to a Moroccan, you know, community in Hartford, Connecticut, and like Lebanese folks in Mississippi, and he goes through West Virginia and like, he goes to all these different places and like talks to them about their food and like their lives and what it's, you know, been like for their community. Um, and I was thinking when I was thinking about this question, and I think I'm, you know, far from alone in that one of the things I miss most about traveling is eating food, A, that I didn't make myself, and B, that's like mm. not something I can get at home. And it occurred to me that this might be really great because, you know, he includes a couple recipes in each chapter related to where he's been. So, like, you do have to make it yourself. I mean, unless there's somebody in your house, you can get to make them for you, um, which, you know, Godspeed. <laughs> but uh, but otherwise, like, it's an opportunity to sort of immerse yourself in both a travelogue and some new food, which I, I think probably a lot of us could use right now. And Edward Lee himself is uh, Korean-American and has lived in both New York and the South. So, like, his perspective is, you know, includes all of those different influences, which I think is, like, a great starting place for somebody to, like, go around and, like, talk to all these different folks about, you know, their food and their communities. And so, yeah, that's that's my recommendation, uh, courtesy of Jamie. So, again, Buttermilk Graffiti by Edward Lee. All right. Our next question is from Maria, who says, I watched this show on Netflix I loved called Amazing Hotels, and they don't have it anymore, but it has me craving a book set somewhere really luxurious and exotic. I'd love a travel novel with really rich descriptions and still a good plot. A lot of the ones I find are nonfiction or memoirs, but if possible, I'd love to read a fun storyline that incorporates the setting, something similar to Crazy Rich Asians, maybe. I went at this a little sideways. I picked A, a Gentleman in Moscow by Amor Tolls, which is not a travel novel. It's actually the opposite of a travel novel because the whole plot is about a dude who can't leave the place that he's in. So like, sorry about that. But I think that you will really like it because it is about a fancy, fancy, fancy hotel and a dude who cannot leave it. Um, and his name is, what What was his name? Uh, Rostov, I think. Yes. So he's a count um, and obviously lives in Moscow and it's 1922. He writes a poem that the Soviet government declares counter-revolutionary. And so uh, he's arrested and sentenced to imprisonment or what's the house arrest. He's sentenced to house arrest at the Metropole, which is this grand, fancy, old, beautiful hotel that's across the street from the Kremlin. So like they can keep an eye on him. Uh, he has a floor that he can live in, but he's not allowed to leave and he's not allowed to have you know people come. So this is where he's going to stay for the rest of his, his life, essentially. And he uh, is in this beautiful, luxurious place, but can't ever leave it. And so he's just like watching, like literally watching history happen outside of his window because, you know, the Kremlin is right there. And there are so many details in this book that are like luxury, hashtag luxury, that become take on this really ominous and almost kind of ridiculous twist. Like there's a scene... Um, for example, when the Soviets decide that the wine cellar that the hotel has is not on brand. Like, I don't know the way I don't remember the word that they use, but it's not uh, Soviet enough, essentially. So they take all the wine labels off and they force the hotel to sell every bottle for the same price, even though some are obviously like much better. And the count just just apoplexy like totally <laughs> freaks out about how the wine is being treated so poorly. Um, and so even in these moments of kind of, you know, cultural revolution, which, you know, was, a, was happened in China, but this like Soviet kind of goofiness happens in this like such luxurious setting uh, that I think it will kind of scratch that itch for you in the same way that like a lot of the, the fun part of Crazy Rich Asians was 
seeing how the other half lives. It's not even the other, seeing how the one the other one percent lives. And that's similar to this. Side note, the Metropole is a real hotel that you can go visit if you ever wanted to risk going to Russia, <laughs> which like Godspeed. But when I was looking, uh, trying to remember the, the main character's name and I looked it up on Goodreads, I saw that Bill Gates, first of all, is on Goodreads. So that's a thing. Um, and second of all, has reviewed this book. He like read it with his wife and reviewed it. And there's a really hilarious part in his review about like, I've been to that hotel and here's what my stay was like <laughs> that if you want to see a real life version of amazing hotels you can go read bill gates's review of a gentleman in moscow on goodreads so that's a gentleman in moscow by amor tolls nice i picked the unlikely adventures of the shurgle sisters by bali kaur jaswal um this was recommended to me by neha patel one of our contributors and i devoured it over the weekend and got totally sucked in and it is very much like a really lushly described Three Sister Adventure. It is an interesting one because it it deals with some pretty heavy topics, but also has some hijinks. So I'm going to give some content warnings for this. There is an emotionally abusive home situation. There are difficulties with pregnancy. There's also discussion of sex-selective abortion, which is the thing that I was not aware of was something that uh, Indian culture was struggling with, but here we are. Um, it also uh, has a depiction of assisted suicide and then um, sexual harassment and misogyny. So, like, it, there's a lot. There's a lot that goes on in here. What it's about is these three grown sisters whose mother is fighting a battle with cancer and is basically on her deathbed. And she is like, I here's what I want you to do. I've written out an itinerary. You're all three going to go to the Punjab, um, where our family is from in India, and you're going to do this pilgrimage um, that's very important to uh, our Sikh religion for me, like after I die. And they're like, uh, like, I don't, I don't want to. Like, they really, they're not close. They're all enmeshed in their own private dramas. The oldest sister, Rajni, um, her son is dating an older woman, and she's, like, having a meltdown about that. Jasmine is trying to be an actress, and she has was, like, recently drunk and disorderly in a restaurant with, like, very sort of, like, comically slash also bad results. And it was all, of course, caught on video, so now her career is in jeopardy, what little there was of it. Um, and Sharina uh, got married and moved to Australia and is struggling with that situation in ways that, like, become more clear over the course of the book. And so they all have their all things going on, and they're not super close and they're fighting about everything but like you can't say no to mom's last wish basically so they go and it is of course sort of disastrous sometimes in really funny ways and sometimes in like really nerve-wracking ways like being women traveling alone in india northern india like opens them up to harassment of various kinds um and it's very difficult and you know some like jasmine is kind of oblivious to a lot of this stuff rajni is freaking out about what people will think of them like they all have their own approaches to dealing with this both their grief and the situation that they're in and it comes to a really incredibly satisfying ending, I will say. Um, I loved the evolution of their relationships and, like, what family secrets, like, you know, become clear over the course of the book. Like, I love a family secrets unfolding. Um, but also, it is so, like I said, the, the setting is such an important part of the book. Because, you know, they get there and they're going to, you know, the Golden Temple in Amritsar and they're, you know, having like these adventures with their driver that they find who insists that they call him Tom Hanks. And like they're just having they're so immersed in what's going on around them, even though they're, you know, they were born and raised in Britain like they're not used to any of it. Only one of them has ever been to India before. So it's 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 both a process of discovery and then this family, you know, family bonding in extreme circumstances, I guess, is uh, the right way to say it. But I yeah, like I said, I just I was totally sucked in. I really loved the characters. Um, and I think it is uh, it's a great book. So, again, that is The Unlikely Adventures of the Shurgle Sisters by Bali Kaur Jaswal. And our last question is from Kachina, who says, I'm looking for two recommendations. Both my cousin, who is more like a sister, and I have birthdays in December, the 15th and 13th, respectively. I would like birthday gift ideas for her and for myself. So Amanda and I are splitting this question. Um, the first request was, 
for the cousin. She needs some good fiction in her life. She's gravitated away from fantasy. She enjoys historical fiction and things similar to To Kill a Mockingbird, which was obviously Amanda's wheelhouse. Um, (laughs) And then uh, for Kachina, the request is, I read and loved the Truly Devious series. I realized the trope slash niche I want is boarding school mystery or something that would feel similar. I think part of this hinges on being in a cozy common room with a fire. YA, cozy feels, boarding school mystery in a cold place. No historical fiction. Okay, Amanda, what are your TKAM read-alike suggestions? You would like a historical fiction about racial injustice (laughs) in the United States with children as the main characters. May I present to you (laughs) The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. Your moment has come. (laughs) This is the moment that I was born for. Very Esther moment that I was born for. Okay, so The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett is the thing that I'm recommending to you. This is about uh, two sisters, the Vignes twins, who are sisters, obviously. They are identical. They live in a tiny, tiny little small southern town in Louisiana. That is an all-black town, but the twist is that it is an all-black town full of people who are as light-skinned as possible. So the town was founded for that express purpose. So, like, no dark-skinned black people are encouraged to live there. They are very much run out of town. The marriages that happen are about creating the most light-skinned passing children possible. So the Vignes twins are very light-skinned and can pass when they leave town, which is not often. But when they are 16, they decide to do just that. They decide to run off, uh, move to New Orleans, and, like, make a life of their own because they're just tired of this, like, small-town life. You know, very kind of typical teenager response to living in a small town is to GTFO. Mm. So that's what they do. They move to New Orleans and, you know, get a tiny apartment that they have a bunch of roommates and they're just trying to make ends meet. One of the sisters gets a job as a secretary in um, a department store by passing. So she goes in to apply for the job, assuming that they're going to tell her, you know, we don't accept applications from black people. She does not mention that she's black and the person taking her application doesn't say anything. So she just lets it ride. She lets it ride for so long that eventually her boss, who is white and never realizes that she's black, proposes. And so she decides this is the life that she's going to live. She runs off to be with this man, abandoning her sister in New Orleans and starts a life passing as a white woman. Meanwhile, her sister marries the darkest skinned man she can find in like a fit of teenage rebellion who turns out to be abusive. So she takes her daughter back home to her hometown to move back in with her mother. So these women start these very divergent lives. The sister who is passing becomes pretty wealthy. Her husband is a corporate executive. She moves into a, I think they live in California. She moves into a very nice suburb that has no people of color living in it until a black family moves in and, you know, her life gets kind of turned upside down and she starts to panic because she's afraid that she's going to be caught. And her sister moves back to their hometown, you know, and and lives out that kind of small town life that they were both so afraid of. And then you follow their children as they grow up and somehow encounter each other through like a series of unfortunate events, you know, um, encounter each other out there in the world. One of the daughters is very dark skinned and has lived in this town where that is looked down upon. And the other daughter thinks she's white and grows up with that idea and all the privileges that that comes with for her whole life until the two of them meet. So it is very fraught <laughs> and super, super tense. And you were just like in it for these people. Like you have want to see what happens. And I think that, I mean, you know, Scout in To Kill a Mockingbird is, I think, six when the book opens. So it's not really a, a direct comp because you're not getting that like precocious narrator kind of thing. But these girls are children when the book opens. And when you really start getting into the choices that they're making, they're teenagers. Uh, I mean, 16 is still a child, no matter how you, how you slice it. Uh, and the choices that they make that have these generational echoes is something that I think, uh, you know, Harper Lee would be very into. So that's The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. One of these days I'm going to read it. I like have heard so much about it. Well, it's going to be a movie, right? It's already been Oh, optioned, true, so. true, true. Yeah. Well, I have to read it before the movie then. That's my rule. Mm-hmm. All right. So I am very delighted to recommend unto you a comic series called Fence by C.S. Passat, uh, who Amanda has raved about before, Captive Prince. Mm-hmm. The illustrator on this is Joanna the Mad, which is amazing as a name. Um, the colorist is Joanna La Fuente, and Jim Campbell is the letterer. And I read volumes one and two over the weekend, and I'm not sad about it. It's it's a comic I've been seeing uh, get a lot of love from the Book Riot uh, comics folks, and I can see why. So it is, as you might guess from the title, about a fencing academy. 
And the uh, main character, Nicholas, is the unacknowledged son of a fencing champion, like a like an Olympic level champion fencer. Um, and he like is very poor and struggling, but he like knows who his dad is, and he is just burning with desire to prove himself. So he like by hook or by crook gets some like sort of middling fencing lessons, but he has talent. Um, and he goes to these, you know, national championships. And in his first bout, he gets just dusted by this fencing prodigy named Seiji Kadayama. Um, like it's zero to 15. And Nicholas is humiliated and angry. And then like cut forward to some months later, he's gotten into a school on a scholarship, a fencing academy on a scholarship. And he gets there and he gets assigned his room and he walks into the room. Guess who's his roommate? It's Seiji. Oh, no. They hate each other. They hate each other. They hate each other. Their rivals. Nicholas is determined to, like, get good enough to beat him. And then Seiji has his own things. Like, why is he here instead of at the very fancy prep school that everybody assumed he would go to? We don't know. And it, like, okay, so there's not, like, a lot of cold weather and there's no fireplaces in this, but the internal weather of the boarding school is so great. Like, you have these lovely emotional dynamics playing out. The supporting characters are fantastic. They're so, it's a very inclusive both racially and ethnically, as well as in terms of masculine presentation. And yeah, the like the character dynamics just make this. I love, I'm obsessed with the fencing coach, who's this black woman who is like clearly has a nefarious scheme to win the national championships with her team and like yes. isn't telling anybody what it is, but she's like pulling all the strings like a puppet master. It's just so much fun and it's so transporting and it does that boarding school super well. So there's not like a mystery necessarily, but you are dying to find out what's going to happen next. And the fencing sequences are so fun to look at. Like I know the most that I know about fencing comes from watching The Princess Bride a thousand times, like quite frankly. But it's that's like the pleasure I get out of this too is like seeing like the depictions of like, oh no, that was like good. Oh no, that was bad. It's like, okay, I'm just here. I'm just here for it all. And I think you'll really enjoy it. And there's a bunch of volumes out. Uh, so again, that's Fence by C.S. Passat, Joanna the Mad, Joanna La Fuente, and Jim Campbell. And that's our show. That is the noise. That's the noise. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you all for listening. Thanks go out to our audio editor, Jen Zink, for editing out all of our worst flubs and foibles. If you are so inclined to leave a rating and a review these days, we super appreciate it. Uh, It helps folks find us if you leave it on Apple Podcasts, which is always nice. Um, You can also obviously shoot us emails at getbooktobookriot.com. Thanks go out to our sponsors who make this show possible. And then in between shows, you can find us on social media. Amanda, where are you? I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. I am also mostly on Instagram these days at I am Jen IRL. That's I A M J E N N I R L. And we will talk to you next time. Bye.